tonight. Turn, please, if you would, to the Song of Solomon, to the third chapter. There is a handout in the back, if you care, back, back pew on the left of the auditorium, my, my right. Very brief, very simple, deliberately by design so that you can, seriously, so that you can make whatever notes you might find helpful about the chapter or the section. Our portion this evening is going to be chapter 3, verse 6, down through chapter 5, verse 1. And uh, I think somebody asked me about the chapter divisions. Um, and, you know, I'm following a little bit of a, I don't want to say an orthodox, but probably not the most common uh, method for working through these poems. Um, and they certainly do not follow the chapter divisions. Um, I guess we know this, this is as good a time as any to mention this. The chapter divisions, seriously, are not part of the inspired record. Um, chapter and verse notations are very helpful, but they came much later. <clears throat> we are grateful, seriously grateful for those who did the work uh, to provide us with that handy reference, but it doesn't always, um, it just doesn't always follow the flow of the text. And uh, so I'm not necessarily saying that about Song of Solomon because as, as we've already seen, there are so many approaches to the book. There are so many ways of organizing the book <clears throat> that uh, this is part of the challenge in dealing with the book. Let's go ahead and pray and we're, we'll kind of introduce it, the section, and we will walk our way through it in the cycle, the, the, the cyclical fashion that we are following uh, through the song. Father, once and again, it is our prayer that you would teach us this book, your words, your intention, your purpose, your meaning, and we desire to know it and ask that you would help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the section that we have this evening, chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1, is considered to be kind of the literary centerpiece of the Song of Solomon. We are dealing with it, my outlines to you and the way that the pattern that I'm followed is to deal with it through a series of cycles depending upon how um, diligently you want to get. There are seven, if I recall, seven cycles like this that the poem follows, but probably a much more common way of thinking about the structure of the book <clears throat> is to divide it into thirds. And so if one were following that formula, chapter 1, 1 through chapter 3, 5 would be, you could call it the meeting, the meeting of the lovers, <clears throat> or the courtship. Um, this section, chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1, is the marriage <clears throat> of the lovers. And then again, if you wanted to follow a, a fairly common threefold outline of the book, the, the balance of the book beginning in chapter 7 and verse number 11. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this would then beginning in chapter um, <clears throat> 5 verse 2 through the end of the book would be the maturing. And, and again, some of that is going to depend upon the interpretive approach 
that you take to the book. And, and again, without going back and walking through all of them, there are three that are the most viable and reliable. Uh, the oldest and the most common, and one that actually was the only legally permissible way to deal with the book of Song of Solomon was to deal with it as an allegory. And when you're dealing with it as an allegory, as you already talked, every, every word, every phrase, every expression is invested with its own unique spiritual meaning that really, when you begin to read through the allegories, uh, you'll discover that the meaning belongs to the interpreter, uh, not to the author. <clears throat> um, then, and this is probably the most common way, I don't know that we would share it, um, but this is probably the most common way that the 21st century church would look at the Song of Solomon, <clears throat> which is to look at it as really simply an earthly book. And, and I'm, I'm trying to put it that way without being critical of, of that view, but that the primary objective of the book is to instruct human beings in the right way to think about romance and marital relations. Um, and then <clears throat> probably the most conservative approach to the book is to view it as being typological in some way. A real poem dealing with real people, but having representation of God's love to the church. And, and so what we're doing is, we're, I'm just trying to walk through the book, first of all, as poetry. And just read it as poetry. And then we'll come back and talk about some of the things that we might consider in helping us shape an interpretation. And we'll take a week or two to do that. So <clears throat> with reference to our outline, chapter 3, verse 6, down through chapter 3, verse 11, the lovers are not together. This is right. This is the first part of the cycle that we have found, is that the lovers are apart, however you want to put that in, in your outline. So let's begin by looking at verse number 6. And again, I'm just a reminder, it's not all in your outline, but we want to try and make note of who is speaking, right? And, and basically we have, I think, three options. We have a male voice, a female voice, and kind of the audience, these daughters of Jerusalem who are addressed clearly at times, four times in the book, and who probably speak at times in the book, and we will talk about that. We want to know who's speaking. And again, for our purposes, because we're just trying to become familiar with the poetry, we want to note what the, what the lovers are saying to themselves. Right? We don't want to just springboard and, and, go and launch right into either the typology or the allegory. We want to make note of what they are saying to each other. And of course, they are using poetry, Hebrew poetry, um, <clears throat> to express their love and admiration for each other and their desire to be together. So, all right, so chapter 3, verse number 6, the, the lovers are not together. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel, they all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot in the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. 
Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. So, first of all, we would ask, who is speaking here? And this is obviously a female voice, and it might possibly be, you know, this is one of the many controversies about the Song of Solomon. Rather than being the bride, it might be the daughters of Jerusalem, these, these people who function as kind of an audience to what is happening. We know that they are not together because she speaks of his arrival. Who is this that comes? And the idea there that come with, out of the wilderness with like pillars of smoke, that might just simply be conveying, and you know, here we are in interpretation quagmire. It is most likely, folks, just the poetic expression of the cloud of dust that has been raised by the chariot wheels. Right? As, as, because that's what we're having here. <clears throat> right? part, of, part of what we're having here <clears throat> is, is the, the wedding. And, and we, right here is the arrival of the groom. And here he comes in his chariot. And, right? Or it might be coming like a, a column of smoke or maybe it's a reference to incense. But I don't think so because incense is already mentioned. Perfume with myrrh and frankincense with all the powders of the merchant. Who is is this that comes? Who is this that comes? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. And and we we will come back to that, right? Because now we have the female answer to this. Verses 8 through 10. We have a question that might possibly be the daughters of Jerusalem. And we have an answer. Who is this? Right? The question has been raised. Who is this coming? And the answer is, it is Solomon. Now, again, let me just jump right in here on a Wednesday night into the middle of the interpretive quagmire. There are no shortage of commentators who make the argument that it is not Solomon. And the fact that Solomon built a carriage doesn't mean that Solomon is riding in the carriage. And, you know, if we're going to go to those kind of lengths, and we're all at some level going to go to those kind of lengths in our interpretation, I guess that's where we would be. But I think that the text very clearly indicates that it is Solomon. Verse number 7, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. This is a carriage that has... A bed or a couch, not a, not a king-sized bed, but enough room to lay down. And it is guarded by 60 brave soldiers because it is, it is the carriage of the king and he has his, his attendants with him. Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon and most likely that means Solomon commissioned the making of the chariot. I mean, it could be that Solomon built it with his own hands, but what is realistically more likely is that Solomon had a chariot built. He had a chariot built for this occasion. It is made of the wood of Lebanon, and if you're a woodworker, you know that some woods are more precious and valuable and desirable than other woods. And the the cedars of Lebanon were the most desirable woods that they knew. 
Um, <clears throat> these, these, were the, these were the famous timbers. And it was a spectacular carriage, folks. Verse number 10. The pillars thereof are silver, and the bottom thereof of gold, and the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Silver columns and a golden floor covered in purple, made with love. That's the idea. Fashioned with love. Carefully made. Carefully made. Made by dedicated craftsmen. And again, this is simply a translation issue. Is it for the daughters of Jerusalem or which grammatically could be equally true by the daughters of Jerusalem? By the children of Israel. And so in verse number 11, right? Who is this that is coming? It is Solomon. Look at him in his splendor. And that's what verse number 11 is, is an invitation. Go look at him. Cast your eyes upon him. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion. Behold King King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. So what we have here, folks, and this is, right, there is, however we, we disagree on the interpretation of parts of this, there's almost universal consensus that 3.6 through 5.1 is describing not only the wedding, but the actual consummation of the wedding. And so, who is this? Well, let's talk about the groom. Let's talk about the groom and his royal carriage and his 60 guards who are protecting him. A lavish coach, a royal procession, a day of gladness, the king in his regalia. It is the wedding day. It is the wedding day. So the first side, they are not together, but chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, they sure desire to be together. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which come up from the washing, whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. So in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, the question is, who is this? And the answer is, briefly, it is the groom. It is the groom. And the groom happens to be King Solomon. Just as she had praised him, now he praises her. And in this passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, 
he speaks. This is now the male voice. And he is describing his bride. You are fair. You are beautiful. When the Bible uses the word fair, it never uses it in the sense of equity. As in, hey, that's not fair. It always uses it in the sense of appearance. To be fair is to be attractive. You are fair. You are beautiful. And again, because this is a love poem, He doesn't just say, you look nice, right? He goes on in flowery language. Your eyes are beautiful. And again, I'm not trying to be funny, folks. I'm deliberately trying to avoid being either funny or sensual. But the reality is that we do not describe our loves in agricultural language. And it, it just doesn't sound right to us. But it doesn't have to sound right to us. Solomon wasn't writing a poem for 21st century audiences. So your eyes are beautiful, dove's eyes. Your hair is beautiful, like a flock of goats. Your teeth are beautiful, perfect. They're perfect. I mean, they're just... And, And quite honestly, folks, there may be some reference here to the to the fact that they're all there which is something that we you know in our culture if somebody is missing teeth that you note in a world like Solomon's where anything resembling modern dentistry had not yet been considered you probably didn't have most of your teeth by the time you got old But here is a full set of teeth, perfect teeth, matched teeth. That's the imagery of the poem. Your lips are beautiful. Your speech is beautiful. Everything that you say is attractive to me. Your neck is beautiful, like the Tower of David. Your breasts are appealing to me. It is, folks, a romantic book between a man and a woman. Not Christian erotica, but neither it is ignoring. The fact that in God's creation, boys like girls and girls like boys. And they like them for very definite reasons. So, and verse number six then is like a declaration of intent. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, again, one of the things, folks, that I'm trying to do is to not get too heavily, too far afield at this point in trying to come to an understanding of the imagery, but it is probably in some way tied to what he had just said in verse number five, that there is a sexual dimension to his intent, right? You are beautiful. You are completely beautiful. All of your features are beautiful. When you talk, it's beautiful. When I look at you, you're beautiful, and I want you. Now, he said all that in poetry, but that's what he said. And so verse number seven there of chapter number four is his summary. You are all fair. You're completely beautiful. Everything about you appeals to me. There is no spot 
in thee. Now again, whether this is the way Christ would see the church, we will consider. But the poem is just, is just this. And I'm not, right? This is God's poem. This is what he wrote, right? Who's this coming? That's the groom. The groom gets out and speaks. There's my bride, and I am completely enamored of her. I am completely enamored of her. This is, in some ways, folks, this is probably one of the easier sections of the book to work through because we can relate it to what's going on. There is a wedding going on, and we will see that. That's very obvious from the language. So the, the section begins, the cycle begins. They are not together. It transitions into their desire to be together, and then is always in the cycle, or almost always in the cycle. We'll debate that a little bit later down the road, there is an obstacle to their coming together. There is some kind of an impediment, and that's verse number eight. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shaner and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Now, there is a lot, again, going back to the interpretive dilemma. There is a lot of debate about whether she is claiming to be in the mountains physically or whether she is just describing the mountain of difficulty that they are encountering. Well, I'm sorry, whether, but it is the male voice that is speaking. It is the male voice that is speaking. Right? The word spouse in verse number 8, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, is a feminine noun in Hebrew. Come with me from Lebanon, my wife, is what we would say. It is distinctly and clearly a feminine noun. So although they have both expressed their desire... In the cycle of the poem, there is some obstacle. There is some impediment that is being addressed. And it's possible, again, folks, to go back to the never-ending interpretive dilemma of Song of Solomon. Is, Is this, right, is this just simply an emotional mountain that is being considered? Or is it a physical impediment? And we just do not know. Finally, then, In chapter 4, verses 9 through 15, the lovers come together. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices, Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. 
So the lovers then come together. And it is again the male voice, his use of the word sister, his use of the feminine spouse, make this clear. And this is the only place in the book, by the way, in this short book of these poems, that we have this word used, and it is clustered there. 4841. His love and desire. It is the male voice. Verse number nine. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. You make my heart beat faster is probably how we would say it. Right? You have ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. It doesn't take much for you to really get me going. That's what he says to her. In verses 10 and 11, again he returns to the theme of her beauty. Your love is more wonderful than wine, better than all the perfumes. You smell fantastic. And again, 21st century American prose describing ancient Hebrew poetry. And he expresses in verses 12 through 15, and this is one of those passages, folks, where depending upon how you want to interpret the book and how far you want to go, but this is a passage that most people right, recognized as being highly physically charged. That he is describing his physical desire. Not just an emotional state of love, but a physical state of excitement. <clears throat> you are a garden closed <clears throat> in. And again, <clears throat> I'm just going to mention this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to explore it. I don't know that we'll ever know until the Lord explains this book to us fully. <clears throat> but, right, is he, is he describing his interest? His excitement? Is he describing her appeal? Is he using this language to describe her pleasure? There are a number of people who argue that verses 12 through 15 are a description of her body. I don't know that I would go there, but there are people that do. That he is, that he is using the highly poetic language to describe the way he finds her body. And in verse number 16, she welcomes his advances. And in chapter 5, verse 1, right, there is a union, a probably, possibly, arguably, a physical union. I am come into my garden my spouse, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my, with my milk. 
So this is, again, by the vast majority of those who deal with the book, this is arguably the consummation of this marriage. And that brings us fifthly to the transition. The lovers are not together. They desire to be together. There is an obstacle, and yet there is ultimately a union, and there is a transition to the next cycle, and that is at the very end of chapter 5 and verse number 1. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. The guests are invited to the wedding banquet. So that is the way this section unfolds poetically, right? Solomon is making his arrival. He makes his appearance. She celebrates the splendor of his arrival. He celebrates her beauty and expresses his desire for it. Now, again, folks, right? Is is the thing to do interpretively to stop at that point? This is the way a man and a woman should look at each other. Or does this have a deeper meaning, which I would argue that it does? But and we'll, so we'll we'll tackle that as we as we move on farther into the text. We'll come to that at the very end. Okay.